Unlike history, fiction gives authors the freedom to depict things that never were. Yet sometimes, fiction writers manage to represent the past with a clarity that few historians could ever match. In this episode, we discuss the works of one of the most celebrated authors in the Arabic language, Abdurrahman Munif. As our guest, Suja Sawafta explains, Munif was trained as a technocrat and worked in the oil industry, but his political commitments led him to literature. While he transitions to essentially cultural production, the, the quality of his work remains very politically committed. As his work matured, Munif increasingly looked to environmental themes. This conversation focuses on the novel Cities of Salt, published in 1984, which Amitav Ghosh dubbed an early example of petrofiction. It focused on the impact of the oil industry in a fictional Arab country from the vantage point of a changing Bedouin society. In our conversation, we discuss how the environment became a major theme in Munif's work. What the environment and what nationalism both show us is this commitment to land, one in the ecological sense and one in the political sense. And we seek to understand how Munif's early environmental critique of the oil industry in the Gulf related to his hopes and disappointments with regard to the future of the region. Munif wasn't anti-modernization. He was pro-modernizing, but in a way that is organic to the Arab way of life. Welcome to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. I'm Rebecca Alamayo. Today on the program, we have a special guest, Suja Sawafda. Suja, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Chris. Suja Sawafda is a visiting lecturer of Arabic literature at University of Virginia, where we're recording. She's also a DPhil candidate at the Faculty of Oriental Studies at Oxford University. In this podcast, we're going to be talking about the life and works of Abdulrahman Munif, a very well-known Arabic author. But for those who don't know, they're going to learn a little bit about why this author is so important for understanding the history of the modern Middle East, the Middle East particularly uh, since the Second World War. Uh, And that's one of the reasons why Rebecca has joined us in this program. We have a student, a former student of my modern Middle East class where we read the works of Abdurrahman Munif. Rebecca wrote a very nice paper about one of Munif's novels, Cities of Salt, and the environmental imaginaries in it as well. Uh, And these are all things we're certainly going to discuss in this conversation. I hope this conversation will be a great primer for the many people who read Cities of Salt, whether in classes or simply to edify themselves uh, in literary perspectives on the history of the transformation of societies in the Middle East and North Africa. So without further ado, back to Suja Sawafta, our guest. Just tell us a little bit about our author, Munif, his background, and how his training, you know, he didn't start out as a novelist, how that influenced the way he wrote and what he wrote about. I'm going to start at the beginning because I think the beginning is important. Abdurrahman Munif was born in 1933 in Amman, Jordan, during the nascent stages of Jordan as we know it today as a modern nation state. And he came of age at a time in the capital where he speaks of it being sort of cosmopolitan, but not in the sense that 
Dubai is cosmopolitan, but in the sense that any Ottoman kind of city would have been cosmopolitan. And he came of age in, during the World War, Second World War, and he speaks about the types of, the different types of people that are coming through in and out of Jordan, and from British colonial figures to other types of Arabs that are treating Jordan sort of as a highway between Baghdad and Jerusalem in particular. And he felt out of place from the very beginning. So one of the things that's important to note is he's the son of a Saudi tradesman. So lower class family. His mother was from Iraq. And he grew up as an orphan in Jordan, raised by two matriarchs, his mother and his grandmother. And the only place he felt at home, which he writes about in a biography of sorts called Story of a City, a man in the 1940s, was when he was speaking to his grandmother in a Iraqi dialect. And anytime he was outside of kind of the four walls of his home, he felt out of place, very much in the same way that Edward Said writes about kind of being out of place as a child in Cairo. Uh, and so he grew up, he grew up in, in Jordan at this time where he experienced racism for sounding different than the rest of his classmates in school. And he was very affected by the loss of Palestine in particular, which even though he was very young when this was happening, he felt that it you know, was something that a lot of people were talking about at the time. And he took notes, let's say. So when he reached the age of 18, he left Jordan and went to Iraq to study petroleum economics. And then due to the Baghdad Pact, he and a number of his classmates were expelled from Iraq and were basically exiled <laughs> to continue their education in Cairo. After that, he pursued a PhD in petroeconomics at the University of Belgrade in Serbia, which kind of hints that he was interested in questions of development because it's petroleum and economics, and he knew, obviously, that the, this was the golden resource of the Middle East, and he wanted to be involved in this post-colonial moment and the nation-building process. He started out as a technocrat who was dabbling a little bit with writing by editing journals and newspapers and things like that. And it wasn't really until 1970 that he transitioned fully into writing novels. And that's due in part to a few things. At this moment in the Arab world, many Arab intellectuals, unfortunately a very male-centric group um, of men of letters, uh, were responding to what Jean-Paul Sartre called engagement which is basically the idea that intellectuals and artists have to remain committed to societal change. And this conversation had sort of started in the mid to late 50s, and there was a debate as to whether art should be produced for art's sake or for politics' sake. So many people, until 1967, were convinced that producing art for art's sake was enough, that as long as you were producing beautiful work, You were doing your job as an intellectual to give people something to read, and, and by default, they would be hopeful through reading that. But after the 1967 defeat, um, where the Arabs were defeated in their war with Israel, Ghassan Kenefani wrote sort of like a call to arms through writing and literature. And he called upon his contemporaries to remain committed to something he called al-adab al-thawri, or resistant or revolutionary literature, in which he urged that The pen is just as strong as the sword. And people, and, and artists in particular, rather, should write novels and plays and other forms of art that are politically charged. And it is at this time that Munif decides to resign from his post as a political advisor to the oil ministry in Iraq. He was working as an advisor to many politicians under the Ba'ath Party, and he became disillusioned with this. But he kind of 
transitioned back and forth or maintained some form of connection with oil and particularly publications on oil and served part-time, let's say, as an, as an advisor to the Damascus Petroleum Company. But it's really his relationship with Jabra Ibrahim Jabra, an exilic Palestinian novelist that basically pushed him to, to make the full transition at the age of, between the ages of 37 and 40. And so the idea was that, you know, let go of politics. We see at this point there's heightened disillusionment with all these false promises that these now, dic- what we are aware of are now dictators, right? With Saddam Hussein, Hussein and Qaddafi and Sadat and all of these people. That these, these are false promises they're not planning on to deliver on. Um, and so he tells him, you can do much more good by switching to writing. And Basically, this is, you know, what he aimed to do. It's interesting that in, I guess, in later years, he looked back on it as feeling out of place when he really is the embodiment of sort of the making and unmaking of the nation states uh, in the Arab world, of course, trained in these new independent uh, burgeoning states, but also like involved in the most uh, dynamic economic sector, if we may say, in that time, which was the oil industry radically changing uh, the region. And then, of course, by the 70s, he realizes that, I guess, it's easy to do politics by not being involved in politics because there's no arena for that. And so how does this influence his writing uh, and what he writes about? It actually influences it quite directly. He belonged to a camp of writers that he called Asiyasiyun. He writes an essay about this time when he was young and he would he was in Iraq. And he would basically go to this cafe called Al Braziliya Cafe and he would hear Jabra and Badr Shakir Sayyab talk about how they were basically dandy intellectuals who were committed to aesthetics. And he would smile and he'd say, us young writers were, were laughing at how romantic they were. And we belong to a camp that exists in parallel to um, Al-Halimun, he called them the dreamers, but we were more politically charged. And so while he transitions to essentially cultural production, the, the quality of his work remains very politically committed. And, and it's always about... In the first half of his career, we have an archetype emerge of an intellectual, and we see many different manifestations of this intellectual, who is countering the state. He's a voice of dissent, but ultimately because he doesn't have popular support or he's trying to do things alone, and it's always a man, unfortunately, um, because he's trying to do things sort of alone, he meets some kind of existential crisis. They either die, they go into banishment, or they go crazy. And... I think in this in his attempt to negotiate sort of the role of the intellectual, he produces different types of different variations of the same intellectual archetype. And it kind of meets an interesting moment in the 80s when he collaborated with Jabra Ibrahim Jabra and wrote one of four known pieces of collaborative writing in the modern Arabic canon. It's called A World Without Maps, Alam Bila Kharait. And it's two novelists sitting together writing about a novelist who's written two novels and is in the process of writing a third novel within the text about the role of the novelist in society. And so it ha- it's this labyrinth of layering um, about this very question of aesthetics versus politics that they're trying to answer. And it's set in the middle of kind of this murder mystery. The lover of the main protagonist is murdered. And so everyone's trying to figure out who did it. And all the while, he's embarking on this intellectual mission of trying to see where his, you know, where his mission begins and ends. 
And there is no resolution, spoiler alert, at the end. <laughs> and I think that the lack of resolution in the novel just shows that they couldn't reach a consensus on that. But Munif remained committed to trying to answer this question for many of his novels before Cities of Salt. And then there's a shift after this period in the mid-80s where he, he shifts from political commitment to environmental commitment. And that is because he decides to represent a figure that isn't intellectual, but rather is still nomadic, because the intellectual was always exilic and you know moving around and not rooted anywhere. But he focuses instead on the Bedouin hero, who is nomadic by essence, and is committed to the earth as a, as a form of a political agenda. And in knowing the earth and knowing how the earth, you know, the person should respond to the needs of the earth and not force the earth to respond to it, he who knows how to control the land in, es in essence belongs there. And so it's this form of like a neo-colonial encounter. Um, and there's often a Bedouin hero that's trying to warn, as we see in Cities of Salt and as we see in Endings and Nihayat, who's trying to warn the other tribesmen of this impending danger of like the oasis falling apart or there's a drought or there's something. So that's kind of how he shifts. And the, and the motive for it, he wrote later on in his career that he realized that there, at a certain point there was more to life than the intellectual and the struggle of the intellectual. And that if you wanted the novel to be society's mirror, that it should reflect all aspects of society. And he tried to do that with the characters that he created. And so in a way, environment offers a window onto the subjectivity of individuals who aren't the intellectual, who don't write in, in newspapers and journals and, or novels about their political vision, but really giving voice in a way or trying to discover the voice of that sort of non-elite figure. Um, so before we talk about that environmentalism mm -hmm. and, and its politics itself, uh, I just want to ask why he decided to move away from this sort of myopic focus on the elite. Was it merely, you know, a, a greater awareness of, you know, his own elitism once he had become an established novelist? Or was something else happening in the region at that time that was pushing him that direction as well? There are a number of factors. I think his his idea of what intellectual commitment or iltizam meant was that you have to be the bridge between the people and the government. As a, as a person of knowledge and a, as a producer of knowledge, you have to remain committed to the causes of man. And so there are people who have written about Munif, and there isn't much, by the way, out there in English, unfortunately. Um, they always say he was committed to the causes of man, whether that be politics, whether that be environment, whether it be economics, or whatever it, it was that the, that the average citizen was struggling from. He did not have any desire, as far as I can tell, of being in an ivory tower. He wanted to reach people, he wanted to engage with people, and he wanted to be involved in that sort of liberation. But he firmly also believed that people had to be kind of mobilized and invested in their own well-being and freedom in order for that to happen. That it wasn't going to be this golden troop of intellectuals that were going to come and liberate society. That it had to be like a ground-up, a grassroots resistance movement facilitated by the dissemination of ideas. Um, and he does, he does this in many ways. It's like a, he experiments sort of. At first, it's with the archetype from intellectual to Bedouin. And then he, later on, we see him evolve the register itself that he's using. So 
a lot of times in his novels, what you'll see is that the language is somewhere between Fusha and Amiya. So it's a middle type of language, which makes it easy to read. It flows. It's accessible to the average citizen. It's not going to be convoluted and hard to access in any way. And I think he tries to facilitate that through his writing. And he was just very aware of that. And I think it's because he also did not come from a very rich family. He came from humble beginnings, you know. And as such, he remained committed to to using his knowledge and education to bettering the lives of others. Uh, and another thing I would like to say is it's kind of like the Arab Spring. When the Arab Spring first happened, everyone was romanticizing it. Everyone was excited about it. We were saying, oh, the youth are going to overthrow these dictators. And later on, you know, a, le a year or two later, we see the rise of the same types of figures coming back, military figures taking over again or just failed mm -hmm. states. Yeah. So in that way, if we were to look at it with that kind of metaphor in mind, he's, he came to this in a very exciting post-colonial moment in which there was hope that there would be freedom for the Arab societies. And it, it became clear very quickly that that wasn't something that was attainable due to the nature of these dictatorships that were arising. Right. It's almost in terms of sensibility, he's got the original rhetoric of the various Arab socialist movements, or maybe even what he encountered in Yugoslavia as a student, long after those political projects had sort of revealed themselves right. to not be champions of the people in, in, in whole. There are Munifs and almost every country in the Middle East and North Africa that we could look at. In the second part of our conversation, we'll go deeper into the work of Abdurrahman Munif. We're going to talk especially about cities of salt and this way in which environmentalism and environmental perspectives play a role in a new politics uh, that Munif is articulating in a, in a very critical moment in the transformation of the Middle East and North Africa within the context of the rise and maturation of the oil industry. So we're going to have a quick music break, but stay tuned for much more with Suja Sawafta. <laughs> Welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. Chris Grayton here with Rebecca Alamayo. We're talking to Suja Sawafta about her work on the literature of the Arabic language author, Abdurrahman Munif. Uh, and as I mentioned at the outset, one of the reasons why Rebecca is here is that I use 
the book Cities and Salt in translation uh, in my history courses uh, as a really unique way at getting at sort of an environmental narrative of a historical process that isn't always available uh, from the historiography. There is one pretty excellent book about Saudi Arabia uh, by Toby Jones called Desert Kingdom that has recently treated this, but for decades, Abdul Rahman Munif had sort of outstripped the historiography in this regard in terms of the complexity. And so, yeah, Rebecca, maybe as we bring you into the conversation, you could explain to our listeners uh, this argument you had about Munif's book as, a, as an alternate form of history in, in your paper for one of my courses. Yeah, so Abdul Rahman was really great at setting the scene for us. You know, he didn't make it this complicated history. He really drew in readers by making us relate to the characters. So rather than just talk about dry history, he made it really personalized. So my paper tried to follow how um, how he did this through describing the politics, um, but not so explicitly. So he talked about everything, so politics, ecology, and social transformations in the mid-20th century without saying where this was happening, without actually saying this is where it happened. Um, he kind of let the, f- the readers figure that out on their own. So my paper was actually trying to see the extent to which the novel adheres um, or adhered to a valid is- historical experience. So by not mentioning um, city- the cities of salt as or context- contextualizing it in Saudi Arabia or Oman or any other country in the Middle East, he was really effective in helping us to see where exactly we could place all of these events. Right. By setting it in like a fictional place, and maybe so I can uh, address the, you know, give us a quick synopsis in a little bit. Uh, it can speak to the multiplicity of experiences without generalizing based on a historical case. It's a really uh, valid point. So to give more context, this novel, Cities of Salt, Mudun al-Milah in Arabic, the main review I got from my students was definitely like very long and a lot of characters, <laughs> <laughs> which, uh, you know, it's a lot to sink your teeth into. Um, but it is written in the accessible style, and it does tell the story of a lot of different characters and how their fates are transformed by oil. So, Suja, just give our listeners a little preview of what's in the book, sort of what's the story and Is it okay if I go back just a little bit before Cities of Salt? Because I think if yes. I preface it with another work, it might make more sense. So when we were talking earlier about the transition from the intellectual archetype to the Bedouin hero archetype, what I forgot to mention and what's important about our our discussion in a bit of, of COS, Cities of Salt, is that the intellectual archetype represented sort of the struggles of the very urbanized parts of the Arab world. In my dissertation, I kind of divide them into the dialectic of the sea and the desert, the sea referring to the Arab Mediterranean and the desert referring to, you know, the Arabian Peninsula. Um, so within the Levantine section and even you know, with North Africa and Egypt, the intellectual archetype is a very prevalent, it was a very prevalent conversation and symbol of that, of that particular uh, moment in history and the political concerns of intellectuals in urban spaces. With the transition into the Bedouin hero, there's actually a book that Munif wrote before Cities of Salt that's more of like a novella called Endings, um, or Nihayat in Arabic. And it was actually the first book he ever wrote, but it was published third in his sequence of publications. And that novella features a very lone wolf named Asaf, which in Arabic means the rebellious one or he who strays off of, you know, 
the right path or some kind, something like that. Um, but Asaf is is like the grandfather of Mitab al-Haddal, who is the, the main protagonist at the beginning of Cities of Salt. And he's a lone wolf who doesn't get along with anyone else in the village, this village on the periphery, between the desert and a more urbanized like Gulf city. And he tries to warn people, there's an impending drought facing this village. And he's trying to warn people it's the way that they're hunting and treating the land that's causing sort of this, the, the spread of the desert, let's say. So the desert is taking over out of vengeance. And it's by contrast, like it's about 100 pages, 170 pages, and Cities of Salt is well over 560. So this is the grandfather figure to Mut'ab al-Haddal, and he, it's the first iteration. It remains sort of shallow in comparison. So flash forward about 15 years, uh, we have Cities of Salt, which is an interesting um, series. It's five novels in Arabic that go back and forth in time. So the first three kind of read in sequence or linearly. And then the last two are kind of very strange additions. But the, I guess the first volume, three of these have been translated into English by Peter Thoreau, and they were not very successful as English translations. I mean, they're much, much better in Arabic. So just to give a brief synopsis of that, now that I've talked about endings, Cities of Salt kind of follows, it begins by following the fate of this village oasis, um, al Wadi Al-Ayun, uh, which is facing this neo-colonial encounter. So basically, uh, it's said that, you know, Sometimes they're referred to as Franks, sometimes they're referred to as Americans, but there's basically this other Occidental figure that's coming and they're taking samples of rocks and sand and they're documenting things and mapping it out. And the Bedouins of this community uh, respond to the needs of you know the seasons. So they only are in the oasis part of the year, as is natural for pastoral communities, but they're, they feel somewhat alarmed that there's this foreign presence and that they're bringing bulldozers and they're destroying the ecology of of the land. And there's one character in particular, Mit'ab al-Haddal, which again, the names are very important here. Mit'ab is like the tiresome one, someone who causes a lot of angst for people around him, who is warning the other village members that they shouldn't trust these people and they shouldn't trust the emir in particular who is working uh, with the people, uh, with uh, with the um, petroleum, what we know is basically they're setting up what is a reference to a Ramco, um, and he's he's warning people not to trust them, and no one listens, and they just tell him you're so difficult to deal with, you know, y- you know, even though he's the patriarch of this Atum tribe, everyone is basically marginalizing him. And the first hundred pages are this back and forth between Mitab and the rest of the community. And then eventually he, becomes very frustrated and he basically he says he basically throws his hands up in there and says I tried to save you why did I you and I'm sorry and disappears on camelback and what that actually does is that it shows us that Munif completely t- takes out a central protagonist mm-hmm. so that collapses then into it just disappears and there's a panoramic exploration of the community as a collective hero. So there is no central hero after the first hundred pages, which is exactly why Rebecca is right. It reads as a social history and an alternative narrative that counters the foundational narratives of the kingdom of Saudi Arabia and the surrounding countries in the Arabian Peninsula. But it's, it, it's very much just a social history of that region. And while it is nameless, this is a device or a tactic he used very often. He never really used the names of real cities. He, in every book, 
virtually he he wrote he creates his own fictional place or it remains unnamed but resembles like Damascus or Baghdad or any other city in order to show that the struggles of the characters in this book are the pan-Arabist struggles par excellence, broadly speaking. Mm-hmm. And that is a very, it's, it's a very smart move on his part because his whole, it's why he was considered the pan-Arabist, the, the formative pan-Arabist intellectual of the 20th century. And it's reflected in the characterization as well in the novels. Um, if you read a history of oil and how it has changed the Middle East, there will be a lot about a handful of American and British engineers and you know Aramco and these companies. But the Western characters, the American characters, are very flat in these novels. The, the rich, sort of diverse set of characters are all in the uh, represented by the local uh, Bedouin community in cities of Saul. Maybe you can tell us about some of these divergent characters and what they say about like his different perspectives on, you know, the multiplicity of reaction to this uh, historical development. I think that the what you were referring to before with the flat Western character, that is actually it's actually very humorous when you think about it, because when Napoleon invaded Egypt. Uh, Abdurrahman al-Jabbarti wrote a chronicle of Napoleon in Egypt, and what he says is these Europeans smell really strange, and they're not clean, and we have to teach them how to be, how to clean themselves, and and not you know mess up the place. And so there's this similar kind of trope in Cities of Salt, um, in which the foreigners are smelly, they're weird, they're not clean, they're disrupting kind of the environment. But then you have, by contrast, the indigenous character sort of with the Bedouin hero and Mitaib and, and the many manifestations of that in, in Abdurrahman Munif. The thing is with Cities of Salt is no one gets a complete portrait. I mean, it's just little bits here and there. It's not about any one person. And even in the critique part of it, there isn't a full portrait of anyone. Uh, so it's hard to say that these are the figures of Cities of Salt. Aside from Mitav being, you know, occupying the first hundred pages, it's just a lot of voices and a lot of prophetic kind of figures that weave in and out of the text. But what he does, which is interesting in representing sort of the early period of the formation of Saudi Arabia as we see it today, is that he he brings like one character who is a doctor from Syria who basically sold out. You know, and he's making money and profiting off of this. Uh, but eventually later on in the later volumes, he meets a very terrible fate, which I won't I won't tell you so that people can read it. But but yeah, I think that's what's so difficult. I mean, it's what's so wonderful, but it's also what's difficult about Cities of Salt from a literary and literary analysis perspective is that you can't pinpoint any one character and their contribution. It really is a social history of the kingdom. Does Munif's environmental approach reflect an environmentalist approach? In other words, does Munif criticize environmental degradation caused by economic activity that might otherwise bring prosperity? In Munif's world, can we separate the two? I don't think we can separate the two. Like I said before, you know, his pursuit of petroeconomics to me indicates that he was very invested in questions of development, whether that be modernizing the political apparatus or whether that be making sure that these countries achieve their full potential in general. And so we know that we can't di- di- sorry, divorce um, environment from that. What I like to look at it more is a transformation rather than something, I, I do think they're mutually compatible um, sort of ideas. And 
I think what the environment and what nationalism both show us is this commitment to land, one in the ecological sense and one in the political sense, if that makes sense. And so while his earlier works are very political in nature, his later works are very Im environmental in nature, but I think it's it's kind of different sides of the same coin, let's say, or just different facets of the same question. Um, people often also compare Munif's work to a Libyan writer named Ibrahim Al-Kouni, who also has this sort of Bedouin Tuareg hero who's countering this colonial presence by saying, I'm here to protect the environment. And in what's really striking about both Kony and Munif's kind of interventions on in the environment on the environmental question is that they don't see they see the respect for the environment as a respect for like the individual if you show respect for the land on which you live that shows that you respect nature and therefore you're going to protect nature and there's not going to be some kind of environmental disaster in any event that the people went against each other or they didn't listen to the warnings of these heroes, what happens, drought, uh, the destruction of the lush green oases. So it's sort of this idea, respect the desert so the desert doesn't spread, sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Be one with, with the environment. Um, but I think it is, it is a different manifestation of the political question because it is tied to land. Well, I'm, I'm interested in thinking more about the context of the emergence of this sort of environmental critique of oil. Because oil was touted by many of the states in the region, Saudi Arabia being one of the foremost, but Libya and Iraq are also great examples of this resource that would give the country its freedom and allow it to develop. Of course, Munif is painting a much dark picture, both politically and environmentally. But where is he getting this environmentalist sensibility. He's writing in a time when environmentalism is sort of just getting steam anywhere in the world, where the first environmental protections and all of this are just taking shape. So I'm, I'm curious if he's drawing on archetypes that existed in politics in the Middle East or, or what he's reading that's um, choosing him to represent things in this way. That's a really interesting question. I think the way that I've, I've thought about this too, and the way I've rationalized it is, Munif wasn't anti-modernization. He was pro-modernizing, but in a way that is organic to the Arab way of life. So in many of the novels in which he like approaches this question, it is a neo-colonial setting, and he's saying, we have to remember it was his forte like he's an expert on petroleum economics so he knows the good the bad and the ugly he knows everything about this um but i think that the the environmental awareness in a way shows he was very ahead of his time but that he had this deep and profound understanding for what it would take to transition to a more you know modern post-colonial reality for the arab mm -hmm. states broadly speaking and we see unfortunately i mean you mentioned libya Libya is a country that is prime real estate on the Mediterranean. It has a very small population. It's oil rich. It has all the makings for a, a wonderful, beautiful like location on earth. And like, look at how it's you know falling apart. So I think that is an example of how all of this went wrong. The environmental, I think it's a combination of a couple of things. I think it's you know from his studies as a petroleum economist, but I think it's also because there were larger debates about modernization in general. And normally, 
I mean, within the circles that he was in, let's say the literati, right? They were saying, should we even bring the novel? Let's talk about the novel for a second because that was his medium. Should we bring the novel to the Arab world? It is not, you know, organic to the Arab world. It's a region that, you know, transmitted stories orally. And so the idea of bringing a European form of literature or medium of writing was already a debate among the Arab uh the Arab intellectuals and men of letters and women of letters and everyone involved in this. And the same thing with socialism. So the Ba'ath Party initially modeled itself after European ideas. Uh, but in a way, it was saying, let's bring the good parts of what the West has to offer, but actually apply them to the Arab world in a way that suits our lifestyle and our political consciousness and our realities. So I think the question of modernization actually permeated both the artistic scene and the political scene and the environmental scene. And he just happened to have, you know, a place in all three of these uh, these conversations. Now, I, I do think that in terms of his environmental commitment, again, I can't stress enough that I think it's a combination of his political awareness and also his desire just to see these societies flourish in a way that was on their own terms and that would allow them to achieve, you know, as much as they could and to flourish. Uh, and I think that the arrival of um, European powers and American, you know, powers and neoliberalism in the region disrupted the Arab world's chance. It kind of hijacked that moment and didn't allow for them to develop on their own terms. Mm. It was according to a Western model. And so you can't, you can't, you know, come to the desert and expect the desert to be like, you know, Paris, for example, or Berlin or New York. It's not the same environment. It has its own rules and one must follow them. So I, from what I understand, you're saying that had it been started, had it been a more organic process started and like promoted by local people, maybe he wouldn't even have had like an environmental approach to the experiences. I don't know if he wouldn't have had them because I think there would have been other ways to bring the environment back in, let's say. I, th I still think that the same challenges of, of, you know, destroying the environment, they still existed. But I think that it was, it was more about emulating a Western model in, gen in general rather than understanding that we have a different way of life here, for example, mm -hmm. or, you know, that there were different conditions, ecologically speaking, that would dictate what is possible and what's not possible in these environments. And so as long as it was something that was allowed to develop and flourish on its own terms, I think that that's not to say that there wouldn't have been challenges or maybe that the environmental factor wouldn't have existed, but I do think it would have taken a different kind of path. But either way, he'd be a, he'd definitely be an interesting uh, literary figure for the modern world, someone who's very post-colonial, but post-colonialism is not normally about the environment. You know, he's he's got these Marxist leanings, but normally Marxism at that time was not about the environment. So him bringing this in is sort of, he is sort of this unique uh, and very complex intellectual figure. I think that scholars of the modern novel should really have to grapple with. So I was wondering, um, towards the end of the book, um, spoiler alert, so basically all of the people kind of rally and they are, they're fed up and um, they kind of take control of their, of what's happening to them. 
that is an example of unrest within the people who were originally like complacent or they were you know they were just going along with what was happening to them so i was wondering does munif present the unrest and social conflict as a byproduct of the environmental changes one of the ways in which he kind of further intertwines political unrest and environment is through the use of magical realism so it's this moment in writing where the the novelist or the writer knows that this could never happen in real life and the reader also knows that it could never happen in real life so it's kind of using playing on the mythical and the fantastical in a way to make the historical part of it so it's like rewriting history in a way that would conform to your notion of it sort of thing by using these these very like fantasy type uh, occurrences um, and I think that's that's one of the ways he does it Gabriel Gar- Garcia Marquez does the same thing there are many writers of what is now called the global south who use magical realism as a way to write sort of new histories or counter histories of their regions um, now is environmentalism or environmental disaster a byproduct of the political kind of situation I think inevitably they are related but how they're represented in in literature is interesting because it's often the earth or the landscape itself that retaliates against the unrest. So for example, we saw in Cities of Salt that all of this chaos breaks out because there's an environmental disaster, but also what that refers to is that the people didn't have agency in terms of what they wanted to do with their own land. In Endings, and in um, which is Munif's earlier work, and also in Ibrahim al-Kouni's um, Nazif al-Hajar, or The Bleeding of the Stone, very similar stories in which there's a disruption of like the natural way of life there, which is in tune with the earth and nature's needs and desires when the characters go against the right way to do things, the right way to hunt, the right way to, um, it's, it's more related to vegetarianism and the consumption of animal meat. But when the hunt is done in a way that is gluttonous, the earth responds either through extreme drought to punish the collective or through flood to punish the collective, both of which are in the desert are extremes, but are something that are, they're very difficult to deal with. Um, so in a way, I think in the novels themselves, the three of them, whether it's Kony or the two Munifs, and I always talk about them kind of together, the environmental reaction, I think, is a character in itself. It's a moment in the in the narrative that is really, really important because it's sort of mythical. It 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 challenges the limitations of what people think they can and cannot do um, on their own. And so it kind of brings us back to the question of how environmentalism is political. And it's it emphasizes this point we've been making throughout and that we want to leave our listeners with, which is that uh, history and literature have to be read side by side. This question of I- the agency of nature or the agency of the environment is a really complicated one in environmental historiography, how to do that with nuance and correctly. In literature, it's pretty straightforward. You can give anything you want agency. Uh, it's about making the point you're trying to make uh, with the the work you're writing. Absolutely. And with Monif's, what he's doing He's countering the official foundation narrative of the like the kingdoms of the Arabian Peninsula. What was the consequence of that? His citizenship was revoked. We know that the modern kingdom of Saudi Arabia, <laughs> um, I might get kicked out of the, like I might not ever be able to go back after this is published, um, was born out of a very violent military campaign 
that tried to unify the tribes of the region in a very European understanding of a rigid nation state. And what's interesting about that is that tribes don't function according to borders. They function according to Nesab or tribal affiliation and kin kinship. Like that's where your loyalties lie. So in a way, the tribe is the state. It functions like a state would function, mm -hmm. right? Um, so his his kind of reclaiming this history um, and creating this new historiography through Cities of Salt was, he, he paid a lot for it. You know, his children and his wife all had to live. He, he was married, he's married to a, was married to a Syrian woman who still lives in Damascus, Saad Kawadri. And she was not able to pass her citizenship on to her child, to their children because she's the mother and it doesn't, you can't in the Arab world pass citizenship through the mother. It can only be through the father. So by extension, him taking this risk to expose the truth, sort of, so to speak, and illuminate these, uh, these, the farce of the foundation narrative of these kingdoms, not only he had to pay the price for it, his children by extension. So I think that, that yeah, this was a very ahead of its time sort of um, narrative. And Amitav Ghosh, who is also here at UVA right now on residency, at the time when this came out said, Abdurrahman Munif is the first writer of petrofiction. Right? Mm -hmm. So he classified Cities of Salt as a form of petrofiction rather than historical fiction. Right. But the historical element is a huge part of that. Right. And as we're increasingly learning, and maybe Amitav Ghosh is gesturing to this, in a world in which you know, human-induced environmental changes have such an outsized role in dictating environmental pro processes, global warming, and, and the role of fossil fuels in that. Um, in many ways, we are all, if we're writing fiction, uh, writing petrofiction because the society is shaped to such a large extent by that um, post-World War II context. There's so much more we could talk about. It's always really interesting to hear student reactions to these books because sometimes they put things better uh, than the professors can. For example, I asked students about another book, uh, Frankenstein in Baghdad, which is a sort of, well, it is what it sounds like. It's Frankenstein in Baghdad. But, you know, this very surrealist book, Elements of Magical Realism, we could say. But what's the value of reading it as a history of the war in Iraq after 2003? And one of the students said, like, well, how would you communi communicate the horror of what really happened without a monster like a Frankenstein in Baghdad. So, and it really, again, speaks to this way in which Munif was doing with literature, what not only couldn't be done with history, but as he believed what couldn't be done with politics and, and sort of his loss of citizenship is that final proof that what he was doing was politics. It was quite radical politics. Right. So the one thing I would like to say, um, and maybe going back to the beginning, when I was talking about Munif's transition to literature in 1970 as a response to Ghassan Kenefani's call for radicalization, it also actually coincides with the death of Nasser, Jamal Abdel Nasser or Gamal Abdel Nasser, at the, in the same year. And with that kind of this, the death of the romantic notion of pan-Arabism, so there was all of these kind of, Everyone was re-questioning what they thought about um, the Nasserist figure. And now that the dictators were here to stay, there was kind of just this revisionist approach as what do we do now? And I think Munif's career, in light of how it started and how it ended, 
is the perfect example of one figure trying to tackle so many different questions, economic, political, environmental, and being okay with failing in one regard and then picking up the pen and writing a completely different history or a different uh, representation. He's probably the only writer in the 20th century that we can't pinpoint to one style. So when we read uh, Naguib Mahfouz, we, we can tell that this is a Mahfouzian novel. When we read Ghada Saman, we can tell this is Ghada Saman, etc. But with Munif, he's someone who wrote about the intellectual, he wrote about the Mediterranean, he wrote about the desert, he wrote about Bedouins, the environment, and he even represented the plight of the intellectual in a political prison and what it felt like to be, so he has kind of prison fiction. He did this all within 30 years at a late start in his career. And I think that's what drew me to him. And I think that's why he keeps reemerging as a figure that we keep reexamining over and over and over again in all the all of these different iterations. Yeah. And and as you said, he wrote so much. It really I'm I'm in envy of how much he was able to put on paper. <laughs> there's a there's a lot that we can't talk about in this conversation. We've talked about Abdurrahman Munif through the lens of environment, uh, but there's lots of other lenses one might adopt mm-hmm. to get another picture of this fascinating intellectual and, p- and political figure of the 20th century. So Suja, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and talking to me about it. Thank you for having me, Chris. This has been great uh, for me uh, as an instructor who will continue, I think, to assign uh, Munif's works uh, in classes in future years uh, at UVA. And I, I want to thank Rebecca as well for joining in the, in the podcast. It was a, it was really nice to have a student uh, in the conversation as well. I want to also thank our listeners for tuning in and staying with us all the way to the end of this conversation about Abdul Rahman Munif and the novel Cities of Salt in particular. I want to remind you that to learn more, you can find some information on our website, uh, a bibliography, as well as links to other important episodes related to this topic. That's all for this episode. Join us next time in another episode of Ottoman History Podcast.